should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on our YouTube channel. I'm Dr. Alice Chen, Chief Medical Officer of the San Francisco Health Network and Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and your moderator for today's program. Our guest is Dr. Mary Nessel, Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. Dubbed one of the most influential foodies in the nation, Dr. <laughs> Nessel is a seminal and prolific writer on the politics of food. She's the author of five prize-winning books on the subject, including Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health. In her new book, Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning, Dr. Nessel offers an incisive and comprehensive analysis of the multi-billion dollar in, uh, soda industry's impact on public health, food systems, and public policy. So this is a homecoming of sorts, as Dr. Nessel earned her bachelor's, PhD, and master's of public health from the University of California at Berkeley. Please welcome Dr. Mary Nessel back to the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> All right, so I'll start with a couple questions. Uh, before, as we're, you guys have your um, cards, be filling them out, bring them up. Um, so let me start with a really basic one. So when you think about it, we are quite literally what we eat, right? We come out into the world as a seven, eight, nine pound being, and we grow to 20 times or more that, um, solely based on what we put in our mouth, what we, the food and the water we ingest. And yet nutritional science and policy has only gained traction over the last few decades. When I was in medical school, I can't remember a single lecture that was devoted to nutrition. Um, as one of the pioneers in this area, why do you think it's taken us so long to pay attention to food? And what have you seen change along the way? Well, I think the big reason is it's quotidian. Everybody eats. And I know that when we started our food studies program at New York University, everybody said, why are you doing that? Why would you study food? What is there about food that's interesting? And I remember having dinner with the provost at NYU and spending an hour trying to explain to him that a billion people in the world don't have enough to eat and a billion people in the world are overweight and that these are the most important public health problems in the world today. And for that alone, food is interesting. And it's a trillion dollar business in the United States alone. And for that reason, food is important, and he just didn't get it. And it's now 20 years later, and he still doesn't get it. 
So why do other people get it? What, what's changed along the way? Well, I think, the, I think obesity is what did it. Um, and what happened was that when the prevalence of obesity increased quite dramatically between 1980 and 2000, all of a sudden everybody looked and said, holy smoke, what's going on? And then a bunch of books started coming out. So um, Eric Schlosser's Fast Food Nation, and there was a Surgeon General's report on obesity and health, and my book Food Politics came out, and then there was Michael Pollan. Um, we can blame it all on Michael Pollan. <laughs> I always like doing that. <laughs> um, so talking about food politics, you started your career as a scientist, actually as a molecular uh, cell biologist, I think. Um, and it clearly shows in the mat meticulousness of your research. Um, somewhere along the line, you pivoted towards policy and advocacy. And in fact, um, Alice Waters of Chez Panisse fame called you one of the greatest <coughs> mudrakers of our time. What led, okay. That's a compliment. Um, <laughs> what led you down that path? Well, I love to eat. That's the basis of all of this. And the, even in my first nutrition class that I taught at Brandeis in 1976, it was clear that you couldn't talk about what people were eating without understanding the politics of it and the economics of it. But I think the pivotal moment came in the early 1990s when I was at a meeting at the National Cancer Institute on behavioral causes of cancer, and there were a lot of anti-smoking physicians and scientists who were really concerned about smoking. And I knew that smoking was bad for you. I knew that the cigarette industry advertised and marketed to kids. I really knew all that stuff but I'd never paid any attention to it. And at this meeting, there were people showing slides of cigarette marketing all over the world, remote areas in Africa, the, the, um, the high Himalayas, every, just from slide after slide after slide of pictures of cigarette marketing, and I just never noticed it before. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. We should be doing this for Coca-Cola. And there it was. There it was. I walked yeah. out of that meeting thinking we should be paying attention to how food companies are marketing um, just the way cigarette companies are marketing. And I started writing about it, and I think I wrote my first article about uh, pouring rights con contracts in about 2000, and had some other articles about food industry marketing. and. I wrote food politics because I never wanted to go to another meeting about childhood obesity where everybody was blaming parents because their kids were fat. Um, I was just really tired of it. Nobody ever talked about the food industry. Nobody ever discussed what they were doing. There were no panels on it. There was nothing being discussed about what could we do to stop food companies from marketing to kids. Yeah. And I was tired of it. Um, I also wanted the American Dietetic Association, which is what it was called at the time, uh, to stop taking money from food companies and to stop doing uh, information sheets and fact sheets that were sponsored by food companies. I lost on that one. So far. They're still so doing it. Okay, no. so we'll actually we're going to talk about all these things: pouring rights, marketing, philanthropic marketing. Mm -hmm. um, but but let's go. Let's talk about soda. So we live in a society that's inundated with fast food, with unhealthy food. You've got Oreos, Big Macs, French fries, ice cream. What's so special about soda that it merits a 500-page yes. investigative reporting <laughs> tome? Like, why soda? Oh, it's fascinating. I'm really into it. It's sugars, <laughs> it's sugars and water and nothing else. Um, it's what Center for Science and the Public Interest has long called liquid candy. And the minute you start thinking about sugary drinks as liquid candy, it kind of changes the frame. You would never let your kids eat candy all day long, at least most people. I know wouldn't let their kids eat candy all day long, but somehow it's become okay for people to drink sodas all day long. And I was interested in how that happened. Um, there is also by this time an extraordinary amount of research that links sodas to poor health outcomes. People who habitually drink sodas have poorer diets, weigh more, um, have more chronic disease, have more kinds of problems than uh, people who don't. And while that is 
association, not causation. There's really a fair amount of evidence right by now that indicates that um, if you're overweight and you stop drinking sodas, you have a lot easier time taking the weight off than if you don't. Um, and the, the research base is extraordinary. And because I'm interested in marketing, I was fascinated and have been tracking what Coca-Cola and PepsiCo have been doing for quite a long time now. I'm fascinated by the ways these companies market. And I knew that they marketed to children, they marketed to low-income African-American and Hispanic populations, and when all else fails, they market overseas. And in recent years, I've become increasingly concerned about the way that Coca-Cola and the American Beverage Association fund research. Um, that gives them exactly the information that they need in order to cast doubt on the science that links their problems to poor health. So I thought there was a book in it. When it was suggested to me, I thought it was just a terrific idea. Um, I was a little bit naive in that I didn't understand how many books had been written about the soda industry already a library, there are enough books written about the soda industry to fill a library, and many of these books are works of outstanding scholarship. They're really, really good. Um, some of them are about the history, some are about the politics, some are biographies, some are autobiographies, but there's a lot of tremendous information out there. But nobody had really talked about it from the advocacy standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I teach courses in food politics policy and advocacy, and I was really, and, and it's obvious that you live in the Bay Area, there's a lot of anti-soda advocacy going on here, and I wanted to kind of bring all of that together, because soda sales are down, advocates are winning, that's why the parenthetical yes. and winning in this, soda sales are down, and they're down substantially, and that has had a big impact on the companies. If you can advocate for sodas, low-hanging fruit, in public health terms, an easy target, then you can advocate for a lot of other things. We'll talk about some of those strategies. Um, but for those of you who haven't read the book, I would describe it as um, containing startling statistics, tales of intrigue, and confessions of former soda executives. Um, so what? So what? What's the most surprising or unexpected thing that you found as you were researching well, your book? I mean, you have a tons of stuff in there, but what yeah. was most shocking or surprising? The big surprise to me was that the soda in industry does so much work to sell its products. I mean, I was just floored by that. And if any of you saw the New York Times article that came out in August and have followed up on it, that, are, that was a revelation about how Coca-Cola funded a group of investigators who um, had formed something called the Global Energy Balance Network, and one of the investigators has a video in which he says, you don't have to worry about what you eat. Everybody's always telling you to eat less junk food, eat less junk food, drink less soda. You don't have to do any of that. You just have to do a little bit more exercise and it'll all get taken care of. And the Times um, did a really big job on this and made it clear that these researchers were doing funded research that gave Coca-Cola the answer that it wanted. And it was such a public relations disaster for Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. I talked to about 30 reporters in the week after that article came out, and they were all shocked. I wasn't shocked, I'd just written this book. I was just upset that, <laughs> that this hadn't come out before I wrote the book. It would have made my work a yeah. lot easier. Yeah. Um, but the head of Coca-Cola um, International, Mutar Kent, said that he, they were going to try to do better and they were going, he had an editorial in the Wall Street Journal in which he promised that they would reveal they would have a transparency initiative in which they would reveal all of the companies that all of the organizations that they funded and they put it up on their website and it is astounding yeah. you look it's just so long <laughs> yeah. and you scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and you're only at the yeah. d's yeah. Um, and you've still got the rest of the alphabet right. to go I think it was almost a thousand over the last four years yeah grants a, that were given out you know um, if you've got an organization and you're not getting money from coca-cola there's something yeah. wrong with your uh, <laughs> development director. No. Yeah, 
I'll, we'll, I'll get back to that. And um, those who live in glass houses should not throw stones. I'm not going to single out any uh, <laughs> single out any organization. But let me get back to the research uh, thing for a second, because it really brings to mind um, that famous quote of Daniel Moynihan's, which is, um, "I think you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts." Um, <laughs> yes. Right. And so, uh, what you're describing is that uh, the industry is really trying to create its own evidence base. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the messages that are coming out from industry-sponsored research? Oh, that the, the research isn't any good, that there's no evidence that sodas have anything to do with obesity or type 2 diabetes or poor diets in general. And, the one, the, and there are many studies that are focused on that, that people who do independently funded research are just as biased as people who do industry-funded research. Public health people have their own agendas. Um, and the um, and that and those are equivalent agendas to the soda industry, and that the main database, the uh, National Nutrition Health and Examination Survey in Haines, which is the main database that links sodas to poor health outcomes, is so flawed that you don't need to pay any attention to it, mm-hmm. and that the real issue is exercise. Right. That if people would just exercise more, obesity would not be a problem. And you t- had some statistics in your book around um, if a research study was sponsored by industry, it was five times, seven times more likely not to find a correlation. Talk a little bit about oh, kind of yeah. the meta statistics. Well, I've, I've been cl- uh, there have been actually systematic studies done on soda industry funding of research, and the figure is 85%. So that 85% of independently funded studies find poor health outcomes from uh, among people who are habitual soda drinkers, and 85% of the industry funded studies do not. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. So that's sort of where the cut point is. And I've been um, casually collecting industry-funded studies on my website, <laughs> since la- not systematically, since last March. And I have about 80 studies so far, and about 85% of them favor the sponsor. And there are all kinds of food companies that are involved, not just soda companies, but the dairy industry, the egg industry, uh, the pork industry. Uh, the nut industry, I mean, anything that you can think of, industry-funded fund, industry studies tend to, to favor the sponsor's interest, because otherwise, why would they do them? Right. There'd right. be no reason to right. do them otherwise. Right. This, these aren't about basic science. These are about results that can u- be used in marketing. A chocolate is a terrific example. I love chocolate as much mm-hmm. as the f- next person, but really, it's not a health food. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Darn. Sorry Um, about that. Okay. (laughs) 
So, uh, so let's go back to that list that was on the um, uh, that Coca-Cola actually ended up uh, publishing. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, th I looked at it. Uh, there were uh, almost a thousand grants. Um, it is a who's who of uh, universities, medical schools, medical societies, cities, youth organizations, ethnic organizations. I mean, even organizations um, affiliated with the NIH mm -hmm. and the Institute of Medicine are mm -hmm. on there. Um, what do Coca we know about the impact? They're very generous. <laughs> they are very generous. <laughs> yes, particularly to health and to youth and, uh, and communities of color. But um, what do we know about the impact? of this money on their targets. Oh, they buy silence. And there are two examples. I mean, actually, there are lots of examples, um, many examples. And I talk about some of them, and others have come out since. Um, but any time that a city tries to do an anti-soda initiative, the soda industry is in there giving a gift. And the most egregious example, I suppose, is the one in Philadelphia where the Philadelphia City Council was attempting to do a soda tax, and the soda industry came in and gave $10 million to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and the soda tax got dropped. Um, and there are many, many, many such examples, I, I and mean, I give quite a few. The other example that I think is really worth discussing is that during the time, I live in New York City, and um, experienced Mayor Bloomberg's attempt to set a 16-ounce cap on the size of sodas. And uh, I talk a lot about what I thought of that initiative. I don't think it was run very well, and I thought 16 ounces was way too high, um, but, um, but I know why they did 16 ounces, but it was way too high. There were a lot of things wrong with it, but one of the things that was really, that surprised the city, health officials, was that major minority groups, African-American and Hispanic groups, uh, weighed in in favor of the soda industry and against the cap, even though the highest rates of soda-related diseases are in those communities. And that just floored the health department. They were completely unprepared for that, but if they had known about um, the soda industry's funding of minority groups, they wouldn't have been so surprised. And it's not just the funding of the groups, it's really long-term relationships. Um, and that started, I have a chapter in the book called Marketing to African American and Hispanics, um, a complicated story. And it's a complicated story because it began in the 1950s when African American and Hispanic community groups began boycotting Coca-Cola and PepsiCo mm -hmm. and uh, doing sit-ins and doing all kinds of protests because the companies were not hiring people from those communities and not advertising in those communities' publications. And so there, Martin Luther King, on the, this was a surprise, Martin Luther King on the night before he died, um, gave an exhort, to, gave a speech in which he exhorted his followers to boycott Coca-Cola because they weren't hiring African-Americans or advertising to them. Um, so that has a long, long, long history. And then the companies, um, Coca-Cola, after all, is a southern company. Mm -hmm. um, and then it took care of that problem. It's now one of the biggest philanthropists in Atlanta. Um, and so the relationships between soda companies and these minority communities are very long-standing, very close, deeply emotional, um, and very important to those communities. Yeah. And it's not so easy to go in and say, uh, you need to be worried about health at this point, it's gone too far. So these are, these are difficult things to work on, and, but it explains a lot of what yeah. the problem was. And I do want to get back to that when you start talking about soda taxes, which are definitely coming mm -hmm. down the line, but I want to bring in some other questions from the audience, um, because actually one of the more opening, eye-opening, there are many eye-opening parts of your book, but one that really struck me was the one around marketing to children, mm -hmm. and how um, the Federal Trade Commission has been essentially neutralized in this area. Um, Tell us about the current status of soda company um, and government policies on food marketing to kids. Mm -hmm. Well, the uh, soda companies have a voluntary policy where they will not market um, sodas to children during children's television programming, and they won't market to children under the age of 12 um, on television. But um, 
television leaks. Kids watch television with older siblings, parents, families. Um, they've, the soda companies have said nothing about marketing to children via sports figures or music figures. Um, the, soda machine, the soda machines are still in schools, even though they don't have full sugar sodas in them anymore, uh, except during sporting events and other kind of events, and there are many, many ways, particularly through online devices and personal um, electronic devices in which the soda companies are marketing to kids. And most of the researchers who are trying to hold the soda companies' feet to fire say that there's more marketing to children now than there ever has been. Um, yeah, the companies yeah. deny it. Right. I should say, you know, an, that I came away from this research thinking that, that Coca-Cola in particular is a schizophrenic company and that it, on the one hand it has its public face which is warm and friendly and humane and interested in family values, love and happiness. Um, and I say that without any cynicism at all. It's really what that face is. And then on the other hand, there's the Dr. Hyde part, who is making every one of these decisions totally strategically in order to maximize right. sales and profits. And they don't care who they sell right. to. Right, right. There's a, there's a public stance of, I think, on the kids issue, like mm. um, under 12 is yeah, off. Yeah, we don't. Right? But then there was a quote from one of your um, former executives. Right. The one who recanted, the one with the karmic debt. Yes, yes. Yeah, there's a guy who was a marketing director for Coca-Cola who left the company and is now um, in repentance for the karmic debt that he says he owes. And he said, you know, we don't market to kids on that. The companies have been scrupulous in adhering to the letter of the we don't market to kids under 12, but on the day the kids turn 12. Um, all bets are off. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then ninety percent of their efforts are like twelve. Yeah, 12, 12 13, 14, because if they could get them hooked on Coke or Pepsi at that age, then they have a lifetime consumer, because people really believe that they prefer Coke or Pepsi, even though blind taste tests show that people can't. Yeah. Um, Let me put together two questions here, um, which is really around kind of like soda one hundred and one. Um, one being that you know one of our uh, audience members was traveling in remote areas of Asia and surprised to note that Coke and Fanta are less expensive than bottled water. Mm -hmm. um, how did that come to be? And then when and how did, uh, did this change from a once in a while treat to a daily consumption mm -hmm. happen? Yeah, it happened at the same time that obesity happened. A lot of things happened around that time, um, and I attribute it to changes in agricultural policy in the United States in the 1970s that encouraged farmers to grow more food. And the number of calories in the food supply jumped from 3,200 a day to 4,000 a day uh, between 1980 and 2000, say, and it's now about 4,000 calories a day. That's what avail what's available. It's not necessarily what people are eating. Um, and companies had to sell it. If you've got twice as much food in the food supply as the population needs or can eat, you've got to push food. And a lot of things happened about of which the most important, well two, the, the two most important were larger portions and ubiquity. So there were things started being made in larger sizes. That's when supersizing came in. Supersizing, it turns out, is just extraordinarily profitable. Um, and to the soda industry, those sodas that you buy in movie theaters, um, they cost the soda companies about, or they cost the movie theater about two cents an ounce to uh, produce and sell and package, and that includes the cup and everything else. And you know what you're paying for them at a movie theater. It's just, they're just extraordinarily profitable. Um, so the bigger the sizes, the bigger the profits. Um, and then they just made them ubiquitous. So there are sodas absolutely everywhere. And this has been a very long time strategy where the strategy for Coca-Cola was to have a Coca-Cola within arm's reach of everyone in America at all times. Um, and that's what you want if it's right there. You just drink it, you don't think anything about it, and you certainly don't think about the amount of sugar that's in it, which is staggering. Um, and the way I remember the amount of sugar, it's five-sixths 
can even say it. It's almost a teaspoon of sugar per ounce. Um, and so if you've got a 12-ounce soda, you're putting in 10 teaspoons of 10 packets of sugar. That's astounding. That's a glucose tolerance test. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so go home and try it. Eight, 12 ounces of water, 10 packets, 12 yeah, packets of sugar. Don't do this at home. Just try it. <laughs> um, so in terms of the, all the different strategies you outline, in terms of how people, um, how the companies have been able to get their product in front of people, um, the one that really, that really um, rubbed me the wrong way in some ways the most was this idea of creating AstroTurf organizations oh. um, sponsored by the American Beverage Association then other front groups um, with names like the Center for Consumer Freedom. It just feels very Orwellian. Like, can you or describe <laughs> to us a real AstroTurf group you had and it how here. it operates? You had one here during the soda tax group. And the most amazing thing was that one of your television stations did an investigation and put somebody in New York on it. Someone in New York applied for a job in the organization and got one, and they were paying $13 an hour to collect signatures on petitions against the soda tax. And there was this incredible um, interview on one of the television stations here laying out the whole thing. And when they interviewed the people who were collecting and asked them who they worked for and who was paying them, and the American Beverage Association was paying them to fight the San Francisco soda tax. Um, in New York City, during the, uh, the Bloomberg soda cap, uh, they were paid $30 an hour. Three O. I sent um, my research assistant out to Union Square to go interview them, and they were pay. They knew who the, the American Beverage Association was paying them, or the, or through this astroturf organization, to try to get signatures to defeat the soda cap. It was a great yeah. job. And what about <laughs> the Center for Consumer oh, Freedom? Oh, the Center for Consumer Freedom. It's a public relations front group for the restaurant industry. And it was respond and it's really it's an attack dog for industries that do not want to go public with those kinds of tactics. Now remember the public face of Coca-Cola in particular is a very friendly, warm, open, public health loving. Um, health, happiness, and you know, love and family values. That's their public face. And so you don't want to be exposed behind the scenes of doing dirty tricks. So instead, you hire somebody else to do it. And actually, this group uh, doesn't reveal who its uh, funders are. And it doesn't have to because of the way it's set up. There have been lots and lots of things written about it on the internet. And I don't actually know whether uh, Coca-Cola or PepsiCo funds them. Um, an official of PepsiCo told me some years ago that they did not. And um, I met recently with the head of Coca-Cola North America, and one of the questions that I had for him was, did Coca-Cola fund the Center for Consumer Freedom? And he told me that he didn't know but would find out. But he hasn't gotten Come back. back to me yet. <laughs> What has been the response of the soda industry to your book? Well, it's been very quiet, and if I were them, I'd be quiet, too. <laughs> um, PepsiCo is saying not a word. They're being very quiet, and they had no comments in response to the New York Times article, which I thought was very wise of them. The American Beverage Association issued a press release in response to the book that I I thought was really funny. It was, um, we're, we are willing to engage with everyone who's you know, going to talk to us, and then it didn't engage with anything that was in the book. It just said we're willing to engage. I posted it on my website. And then the International Food Information Council, which is an industry group in Washington, D.C., um, had somebody do a blog post on it, but it was obvious that she hadn't read the book because she attributed all kinds of scientific views to me that I don't have. So <laughs> she, didn't read the, she didn't read the book. Um, well, maybe she'll listen to this interview. Hmm? Maybe she'll listen to this interview. Maybe she'll listen to the interview. Yeah. I don't know who she is, but, um, but that's really all. And if I, if I were them, I wouldn't say anything either. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Mm -hmm. 
I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years and uh, over the past couple of months I just opened up my club Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Because the best thing that could happen to this book would be to have them attack it. And I wish they would. It would be the would. prologue, right? <laughs> I the, wish the, they would. Afterward. So um, one of the bright spots in your book is, a, um, is the slow but real progress in getting sodas out of schools. Mm -hmm. And so this gets us back to that whole term pouring rights. I don't know how many of you are mm -hmm. familiar with it, but pouring rights, time and place restrictions, the role of the USDA. Mm -hmm. um, where do we stand today? And in particular, we have actually two folks here from San Francisco State University. State. Yes. San Francisco, San Francisco State. State. Yes. Yes. Um, who are actively working on this. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. So actively working on it and wondering, you know, what have we learned and what are some effective um, advocacy strategies around this? Well, you have to do advocacy by the book. And I use the Berkeley soda tax as an example of advocacy done by the book. They did everything right. First of all, they, fr they had a framing device that worked really well for that population. They framed it as Berkeley versus Big Soda. And that paid off so that when Big Soda came in and plastered the Berkeley BART station with advertisements, which had never been done before, I guess, and people were really offended by all the advertising, they could see this was how Big Soda operated. Um, and were not taken in by it at all. Um, and then the other thing they did was they canvassed and went door to door in every single neighborhood in Berkeley, rich and poor. So they enlisted the low-income groups as well as the high-income groups and were able to unify around a common goal. And also, they were pretty sure that they could trust the Berkeley City Council to use the revenues from the soda tax for public health purposes, which is exactly what is happening. Um, and I thought the, those three things, oh, and they had Bloomberg money. That didn't hurt either. Um, they had money from the Bloomberg Foundation, which paid for television advertising. So they were in really very, very good shape there. But they did everything right. And so if you're doing that, you've got to get allies. Um, you have to work with every single group on campus to try to bring them in on this. It isn't something that you can manage on your own. Um, and you have to be talking to the administrators at your university who run your food service to try to do it. And I say this in a glass house because I'm at NYU and we're a Coca-Cola campus. Um, which recently switched from PepsiCo and it's been impossible at my university to do anything about it because there isn't a large enough student presence 
And we can't do it unless students are taking the lead so on it. For those of our audience who don't know what a pouring rate oh, is, sorry. or what it means to be a Coca-Cola campus, because we have another question here. Is the world divided up county by county between, or country by country, between Coca-Cola and Pepsi? Like, how does this work, this pouring contract thing? Oh, the, well, I should say the pouring rights contracts are contracts with um, usually universities, but I'll, I'll just say something else about that, but with um, an, an institution that allows the sale of only that company's products at the institution in return for um, having logos everywhere and vast numbers of vending machines with those products in there. And these started at Rutgers University in the early 1990s and then spread to, under, to other universities and then trickled down to high schools, junior high schools, and grammar schools. And when they got to grammar schools, there was suddenly a big backlash, a public health backlash, because what it did was it put the schools in the position of pushing sodas, because the more sodas they sold, the more money they got. And so there were principals who were urging teachers to urge their ki the kids in their classes to buy sodas because they would get more money, usually for sports equipment. Um, scoreboards were the big things. And it was kind of scandalous. And now those pouring rights contracts are pretty much out of grammar schools, are slowly being phased out of junior high schools and are, are still very much in high schools and colleges. And they're worth millions of dollars. So that PepsiCo bought a contract with City University of New York a couple of years ago for $20 million. It's pretty hard for an administrator to turn that down. Oh, absolutely. This is a Commonwealth Club of California program, and we are talking to Dr. Marion Nessel, New York University professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health, and the author of Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda, and Winning. You can hear Commonwealth Club prog programs on the radio, catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and see program videos on our YouTube channel. I'm Dr. Alice Chen, your moderator. Um, so as a proud resident of Berserkly, super liberal Berserkly. <laughs> I just want to go back to that um, uh, Ber uh, soda tax because it was exactly one year ago this week, right, that it was mm -hmm. passed. The first, I think still only, mm -hmm. despite dozens of other cities and states trying to, um, trying to do this. Um, what are the take-homes? Because some of the evidence is now coming out, or mm -hmm. studies are coming of the Berkeley, and how does that compare to a place like Mexico, if you want to mm -hmm. talk about Mexico's soda mm -hmm. tax? Yeah, Mexico passed the soda tax, too about a year ago, and the sales in of sodas in Mexico were down about 6%. And this struck so much terror into the heart. Mexico has the highest, um, if not the highest, and one of the highest per capita consumptions of sodas in the world. Um, it's got really lousy water, and the soda industry moved in decades ago to try to promote sodas as a substitute for water. It's sold in three-liter bottles there. Um, and the, so the soda tax passed, sales are down by about 6%, and the soda industry moved in and went to the government and said, you've got to cut the tax. Um, and the, there was a committee of the government that agreed to cut the tax in half, and then there was a huge advocacy outpouring, and they backed off on that. So at the moment, the tax is holding, um, and now everyone's waiting to see whether the Mexican government uses the revenues for the purpose that they had promised to use it for, which was to put clean water in schools and to try to do something about the water supply. Um, there is a extraordinarily skilled advocacy coalition in Mexico, um, and a, the Nutritional Health Alliance, which includes about 30 advocacy groups, of which the most important is consumer power, and these people are really skilled, so skilled that the Bloomberg Foundation um, has put a lot of money into funding them, um, and uh, it was a group well worth funding. I think they're doing a really good job. But everyone is watching, it's being evaluated, they're under tremendous scrutiny, scrutiny and the politics are tricky. In Berkeley, they're generating about $100,000 a month, which I believe are being used on health, for child mm -hmm. health purposes, so that's kind of wonderful. 
Yeah. And how likely do you think um, this will spread to other places? Oh, I think if people can emulate the way in which the Berkeley, Berkeley went about doing its tax, that they'll win. Um, but you have to do community organizing, and if you don't do community organizing, it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, I have two that's questions. the take-home lesson. So um, community organizing around uh, and against kind of the food industry, I have two questions here around um, the fact that even public health departments are sometimes not taking a strong stand against industry, essentially muzzling efforts by line staff. Um, how do we shift and even pressure those, you know, good guy institutions to taking a stronger stance? Um, what needs to be done to get the Surgeon General to write a report? and mm -hmm. sugar-sweetened beverages. Yeah, um, evidence, evidence, evidence. Uh, and there's plenty of evidence, I mean, really plenty. I mean, I don't know what to say about public health. I went into public health because I thought it was a change the world field. I mean, I thought that's why you went into public health, because you wanted to equalize health. You wanted to remove health inequities. You wanted to promote health. The most democratic thing in the world is to have a healthy population. Um, but there are lots of people who, don't, who go into public health for other reasons, I guess. Um, and they're scared, and they're not used to taking political action. I mean, I teach courses in food policy and politics. I've got one of my students here. Thank you so much for coming. Um, and I can tell you that a lot of them are really uncomfortable by politics. That the idea of taking action makes them really seriously uncomfortable. The idea of, of writing letters to congressional representatives, going to Washington and lobbying, talking to their local representatives, makes them really uncomfortable. They would much rather be working at a food bank. Um, which makes them really comfortable and makes them really feel good about what they're doing. Um, so that's the real question, is how do you encourage people to think that political action is going to do some good? I mean, there's a lot of dis depression and pessimism about the politics in Washington for very good reason. And it's hard for people to be optimistic that they'll be able to make change. But if you don't do it, who's going to do it? Right. And this actually um, brings us back to the soda tax, because I think in a number of communities that same dynamic has been happening, in particular, um, you know, the soda tax vote in Richmond, California, mm -hmm. um, was very freighted. And would love to hear your thoughts on that. And here in San Francisco, in the context of gentrification, mm -hmm. it was really easy for the sale, uh, soda industry to frame that soda tax mm -hmm. as one of um, unfair to people of color or aggressive tax mm -hmm. on poor people. Um, mm -hmm. Same dynamics. How do we deal with that? Well, it is regressive. How did they handle it in Berkeley? They handled it in Berkeley by doing community organizing around the health issues and around the big soda issues, and people got it. It wasn't that people didn't get it, they did. Um, so if you can't expect, I, I mean, in, I talk a lot about race and class in my book uh, because it comes up over and over and over again. And one of the most impressive things that I came across in doing the research was a statement by uh, the head of the NAACP, and I can't remember whether it was New York State or New York City, and he said, and this was in, with respect to the soda cap, which remember the big organizations supported the soda industry, he said nobody ever came and talked to us about mm. it. The brother never came, was the way he put it. Nobody ever came and talked to us. They just dumped it. Well, you can't do that. I mean, that's not how social change right. takes place. So if you expect to uh, put in a measure that's going to affect people who don't have a lot of power, you at least have to talk to them about how they can exercise power in that situation. And if you don't, you're doomed to failure, and you deserve the failure that you get. Um, and, and I thought, you know, I used the soda cap story in New York as an example of how not to do this kind of social change. They did everything wrong. You know, really everything. It was appalling. Um, it wasn't framed. It was done in a way that seemed as if they were trying to sneak it through, and there was no community organizing around it. I, I mean, it was really appalling to watch and very disappointing. On the other hand, it got a lot of attention. Um, and, you know, this is a very rich mayor who can do anything he wanted, and this was 
you know, I mean, the, the claim is um, Tom Farley, who is the physician who headed up the health department, has just come out with a really excellent book, Saving Gotham, which is uh, a, uh, his version of all of the public health initiatives that the health department entered into. And the ones that did community organizing worked, and the ones that didn't do community organizing didn't work. And he said they didn't have time to get their community organizing in place because they were afraid that the soda industry would find out about it and kill them. Which but, they did, yeah. But, 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 and at the same time, you point out that even though in many of these places, or almost all these places, except for Berkeley, um, uh, these efforts have not succeeded, they have succeeded in raising public awareness. Oh, yeah. And, and that's, uh, we so think, the driver of the... So, and so even though the soda industry has no comment to your book, What's their response to this declining um, consumption? Oh, two things. Uh, one is to produce healthier products. And the, the other, uh, three things, sorry. Healthier products, the little cans, those little seven and a half ounce cans, you pay more for those. And as somebody once said, if you want large portions, you should be willing, if you want small portions, you should be willing to pay for it. Um, the, um, and so they're making tremendous profits on those small cans. They have upped their advertising budget to promote the small cans. And then the other thing they're doing is they're marketing overseas. And they have committed the most astounding amounts of money to marketing overseas. For example, both Coca-Cola and PepsiCo have said, uh, this is a ballpark figure, but roughly $5 billion, that's a B, not an M, billion dollars between now and 2020 to market sodas in India, another $5 billion in China, another $5 billion in Southeast Asia, another $5 billion in Latin America, and much, much more than that in Africa. Much, much more than that. Coca-Cola alone has committed $3 billion a year to marketing in Africa for 10 years. $29 billion over 10 years. Think about what $29 billion could do for development in Africa. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Just think about that. It's astounding. And you look at the consumption figures in these countries, um, you know, the average number of sodas in the United States consumed is roughly one 12-ounce can, between 10 and 12 ounces a day per capita. Men, women, little tiny babies in the United States, and only half the population drinks sodas, so that's twice as much for the half that does. You look at, so that's, um, let's say that's three or 400 cans of soda a year per capita, per capita. In China, it's under 10. In India, it's under 10. Think of the way sales could increase in those countries. And so the soda companies are looking overseas yes. to make up the yeah. difference. And is there a, 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 an extant or existing advocacy structure in those countries to actually oh, prevent what's happened? I mean, it would be starting, criminal if basically the same thing that happened yeah, in our country ended up happening It's the same thing as cigarettes. It's the same thing as cigarettes. And, you know, there are advocacy groups that are starting to look at it. I mean, there's an enormous collection of advocacy groups that I list and I've got on my website and, you know, all kinds of things. There, there are just so many. Yeah. And there are some that are international. Um, but remember, the soda companies are funding organizations, so that undermines the ability to get international organizations to take stands on these right. things. And I have many examples of those. 
And in terms of all the different advocacy strategies, one question here is, um, what's the role of litigation? Oh, um, it's really litigating important. soda yeah. as a defective product. Yeah, it's really important. And I'm not a lawyer, and I don't really understand the legalities of it. But I would say that lawyers started looking at ways to litigate against obesity um, maybe 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. And now I'm told that food law is the hot new area in law that law schools are all over the country are starting food law programs, and the people who are going into this are, use, are wanting to use the law to promote public health. So I think we're just at the beginning of that, um, and we'll see much, much more of it in the same way that the most important food safety um, aspects of our, uh, the way our food safety system works is a lawyer up in Seattle who litigates all the cases that, of food safety problems. Um, and he's a one-person food safety system. Um, there'll be lots of others, so I'm very interested to see how these things will come about. Um, but I'm certainly talking to people in city health departments, in city attorney's offices, uh, in New York City. We have uh, food studies program graduates who are working in the uh, New York City and New York State Attorney General's offices who are talking about ways in which they could litigate right. food problems. I think it's really important. And then in terms of food law policy, I mean, a lot of it um, goes back to fundamental um, agricultural policy and, and mm. um, subsidies. Um, I think a lot of people have heard about um, high fructose corn syrup. What are some of the key things you would see needing to change? in terms of um, in agricultural, agricultural policy? policy and we don't have an agricultural policy that's linked to health policy at all. It has nothing to do with it. And in the last farm bill, there were some attempts to get, um, to get some money into the farm bill that would support fruit and vegetable production or marketing or whatever, and um, they were just thrilled that they got you know, $100 million or something over the 10 years of the farm bill. That's a rounding error in the farm bill. It's so small. Um, I mean, it's just so minuscule. The money still goes. We don't have direct subsidies anymore, which is a step forward, but the federal taxpayers support the, the crop insurance for major commodities that are the basis of junk foods. Mm -hmm. um, and we have other policies that protect sugar growers, cane and beet growers, um, and actually keep the price of sugar high, but not high enough to discourage sales. So, but none of these policies are linked to health policy. And that's the big flaw. If you were gonna do one change, you would wanna sit down and say, how can we use this ridiculous um, $100 billion a year bill to promote the health of citizens, to make food healthier, to have a more, I hate to use the word sustainability because that's the S word these days, but uh, a more sustainable and healthier food system from which we would all benefit. Absolutely. Um, so you've done soda. What's next? Uh, conflict of interest. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the next project. I mean, it grew right out of this when that Times article came out, and all of the all of this soda industry funding of researchers and individuals came out. I thought, oh, there's a book in there. It won't happen soon, but there's a book in there, and I'm starting to work on that. Um, penultimate question: um, Can you talk about GMOs in soda? Well, if it's got corn syrup, it's GMO, because 90, 95% of the corn in the United States is genetically modified. And that's one of the reasons why the soda companies were such generous uh, funders of the uh, anti-labeling programs in Washington, California, and Oregon. And that was revealed in a law, well, here's where legal action comes in. There was a, a lawsuit in Oregon that forced the grocery manufacturers to reveal, uh, which was a big funder of the anti-labeling initiative, to reveal who had funded them. And it was clear that Coca-Cola and PepsiCo um, and the American Beverage Association were funders. Um, anyway, Coke and Pepsi were, were funders of the anti, 
labeling initiatives and they don't, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't really understand the whole labeling thing. I, I was on the FDA Food Advisory Committee in 1994 when the issue of labeling came up. And we said, you know, you really have to label these things. If you don't label these things, people are going to worry about what's in them and they won't trust you. And they looked at us like we were crazy. So, <laughs> so the only thing that surprises me about GMO labeling is it took this long. Um, so we've reached the point in our program. We have time for one last question. So what I'll ask you is, um, the Super Bowl is going to be in San Francisco. Oh, lucky next year. you. Yeah, lucky us. <laughs> um, if you had an opportunity um, to air a PSA during the Super Bowl, what would your messages be? Eat your veggies. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, our thanks to Dr. Mary Nessel, New York University professor in the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health, the author of Soda Politics, Taking on Big Soda and Winning. We also want to thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the internet. I'm Dr. Alice Chen, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemiao.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Miao Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.